So we divide up into three parts of Psalm 7, and we're going to hopefully get through all three. Uh, these three categories, we're going to begin looking at the uh, case, if you will, of the psalmist, David. We're going, as he presents it to us, we're going to be then looking at the nature of God and his judgment, and then the expectation of that upon the sinner and what that looks like. And so we're going to be looking at these three. Hopefully we'll get to all of them. I'll try to, to preach really quickly, if you'll listen very quickly. That's the hard part. Uh, in Psalm 7 we begin, and let's read it together. It says, A meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. Silah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. So the congregation of the people shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. O let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. He made a pit and dug it and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and we'll sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. We begin a little bit in the setting where we have a little more information as we did in the previous psalm. We have some information about the context of this psalm, and you would think that that would bring clarity, but it doesn't really because we have several occasions to select from, to think of in terms of its context. Uh, we certainly... Uh, recognize that this is a another sort of lament psalm. It is a psalm, it, it could be classified in a couple other different ways as well, but it is certainly David presenting before the Lord a case of his condition, his circumstances versus those of his enemies. And in the last psalm, we really saw more of a general approach of just the, when, when the aspects of life, whether they be individuals or circumstances, uh, whatever that is that weighs in on us, uh, and of crying out to the Lord for deliverance in those in environments that we, that we pour ourselves out to him and, and seek to bring glory to his name. In this psalm, we have a very specific attack, assault upon um, David that he is concerned about and we're going to be referencing that uh, throughout the psalm. But it, again, we have some struggle. Most of your cross-references of this chapter will take you to the uh, events around David's uh, removal from Jerusalem 
where he evacuates Jerusalem uh, under the threat of Absalom, his son. And uh, then you have Shammai, who was a Benjaminite himself, uh, cursing him. And most often that is what is connected to this psalm. Uh, and I don't really see that evidence here. There's really nothing here that would indicate that, that uh, David was in a position as being king, that he's referencing Shammai. Um, I know that there's a connection of the Benjaminite, um, but we're going to see that that's expected early on as well. And so we find that um, David doesn't appear in this context to be talking about fulfilling his roles as king or of the kingdom itself. Uh, he certainly speaks to the people of God, um, but his concern is, is uh, that, the, that he is not being cursed. His concern is that he's being falsely accused of something. And that is very different than what Shammai the Benjaminite put forward. And others have said, well, there are other people that are bringing accusations against him. Uh, and certainly Absalom was. He was bringing those kinds of things at the gate where he said, oh, the king doesn't have time for you. Let me resolve your case. Um, and certainly that wasn't the case. Uh, but the nature of this uh, is very different. And I would like to take us to another time in David's life. And again, we don't really know who Cush is, but it's certainly concerning Cush the Benjamite. So I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, we have the events surrounding the time of Saul chasing David. And we really go back into chapter 20, but I'm going to pick up in 21, where we find David fleeing. And of course, in, the, in chapter 21, he is, he is um, accessing the sword of Goliath. He is in there in the temple area, in the in a tabernacle area. There was no temple yet. And, and he is asking for the bread. The only bread they had was the, the, the showbread. And then they offered him the sword of Goliath. And of course, then he flees to Gath. And all along throughout this, as we go into chapter 22, 23, 24, we find uh, this consistent pattern that as he goes into places, he asks the Lord, you know, are these people going to betray me? Are they going to hand me over to Saul, the king? And the Lord says, yes, they will get out of there. And things along that line. Of course, Doeg watched what was happening in chapter 21, and he uh, gives up David's location to Saul when Saul asks uh, later on. And so we find that this is the common condition uh, in this time where David couldn't trust anyone. And you can understand that to a degree. Saul is king, and whether if you are an uninformed person in the kingdom of Israel, Saul is your king. And if Saul is hunting down this one David, David certainly must have done something wrong. And so you're going to uh, demonstrate your fidelity to the king by revealing the presence of the king's betrayer or enemy. You don't really know why Saul is after him. Uh, we do because we have that in inside information but it was very unlikely that anyone, very few people in all of Israel knew that David had been anointed to be Saul's replacement. Uh, rather, they just saw the politics as from the outside and would have certainly taken uh, Saul's side in this, and particularly those of the tribe of Benjamin. Remember that Saul was a Benjaminite himself, and so all the tribe of Benjamin would have had great sense of loyalty to Saul, 
and we find that that is the case. And so David is out there in the wilderness places, in the forests, uh, hiding. And of course, in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, we have the description of the kind of people that come to him, uh, in addition to his own family members. But in verse 2, it says, everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, everyone who is discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. And again, we find that this is a, an interesting description of uh, the people that are gathered to him. Well, what was David associated with? Well, he's associated with, with malcontents. He was just, that was who came to him. Anyone that had a, a problem with authority over them, uh, they thought, well, here's a person that, that apparently has a problem with the king, and the king certainly has a problem with him, and they kind of gathered to him, and he kind of got together. He was kind of a lightning rod for those kinds of individuals to come and seek a place of, of solace and comfort there with him. And, uh, and, of course, David has to deal with them all along the way and instruct them. And I think this psalm fits into that setting, especially when we get, if we follow through and we find these, these, this, this chase that's going on, the hunt for David by Saul, and we find, of course, we get to chapter 24, that there's an opportunity for David to defend himself. When uh, the men that said, hey, God's delivered David, Saul into your hand, let's just take the king. And David says, no, I can't do that. Uh, and so uh, even cutting the robe bothered David. Uh, he was of a different ilk than the men that followed him in many respects. And so they didn't really understand it. We come now in verse 7. We'll pick up in verse of chapter 24 I'm in 1 Samuel. It says, So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. David also rose afterward, went out of the cave, and called out to Saul, saying, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And now this is the very important verse here that I think is connected to uh, Psalm 7. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? People were coming to Saul and telling him Saul what Saul wanted to hear, that David was a threat to him. And I would contend that among those that would have done so was this man, Cush, who was falsely accusing David of some disloyalty uh, in action or an attitude in speech against his king. And here's an opportunity for David to demonstrate to Saul that in fact there is no disloyalty on his part. He acknowledges him, Saul, as his own king as the Lord's anointed, as long as Saul is alive. And so he, he wants to declare today, uh, this day your eyes have seen the Lord delivered you into my hand in the cave. Someone urged me to kill you. My eyes spared you. I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, and as father-in-law that is true, see, yes, see, the corner of your robe is in my hand. For in that I coughed the corner of your robe, and I did not kill you, no one see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. 
Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. And then he talks, as the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out, or who do you pursue? A dead dog, a flea, therefore let the Lord be judge, and judge between you and me, and see and plead my case, and deliver me out of your hand. And again, Saul's response is to lift up his voice, weeps, says, this is my son David, and you are more righteous than I. Wonderful response. But I want you to take this account, this record of this encounter, and now bring that into chapter 7, and we can see the very same terminology and certainly the same concepts here in Psalm 7. And this is much more aligned with what went on there uh, in the period of time of Saul chasing down David and having various people exercise loyalty to Saul and disloyalty to David. No matter how much David did for them, uh, they were disloyal to him. They, they couldn't be trusted. And in fact, apparently one of those Benjaminites named Cush uh, invented an accusation against David. And David references, people have been telling you I am your enemy, that I have somehow broken my relationship, my responsibilities to you. They have accused me of this, and I'm here. God has given me this opportunity to demonstrate the falsehood of those accusations. And I would contend that that chapter is God's response to this psalm. Because one of the things that David is asking for is for his righteousness to be evidenced to those that um, have accused him, but also to those that hunt him, that want to destroy him. Lord, I want you to be the judge. Judge my righteousness and judge their wickedness. And we're going to see that here in the midpoint of this psalm. And so put that event, I believe, is much stronger aligned with this psalm than the Absalom treachery uh, that we see later, much later in David's life. And so when we read through this, we have him crying out to God that um, certainly uh, it is the Lord is God, that he is calling upon both in verse 1 and in verse 3, he repeats that, that it is you I am trusting in, and he wants to be delivered from those who persecute me and deliver me. And again, the very clear statement, they want to destroy me. They want to just rip me to shreds. And so, uh, and this is the desire. This is not the, just the desire of Saul, but of those aligned with Saul that say, well, this is the anointed and we're going to attack David and tear him to pieces, not just physically, but in his character, in his testimony, we're going to just rip him to shreds by these false accusations. If you think Saul was the only one who was made jealous by the song that extolled David, I don't think you understand the nature of people. Um, when one man excels, like David excelled, uh, going from being the youngest shepherd keeping watch over the sheep to being uh, brought to being brought before Goliath, what did his brothers think about that? You know, they were like, "What are you doing here?" You know, and so there was a little bit of animosity there, although the brothers are attached to David by the time David was uh, in the conditions of this psalm, um, for they had 
been there at his anointing. They knew what he was for. Uh, and then to move from that experience to being brought into the very palace and then being married to, to Saul's daughter, being brought into the very royal family. Uh, and so you don't think that there were people that were jealous of this young man? Certainly. And here's an opportunity for them to rip him apart because Saul obviously has something against him so we can align ourselves with the king by disparaging, uh, even falsely, this young man. And so certainly that was the case, and it is evident that there was one man named Cush who had an accusation. And so the reality is that they are certainly uh, seeking to destroy him, not just to, tear, just to, just to kill him, but to really uh, rip him to pieces, in, in not only literally, but figuratively, with regard to his reputation. And so in verse 3, we have him laying forth the, the statement of his innocence in a negative way. His statement is, if I've really done what I've been accused of, this is really, if, if I've done that, then I deserve to be ripped apart. I deserve to be destroyed. My reputation deserves to be drugged through the mud. I deserve to be slaughtered, to be destroyed. Um, I deserve, if that, if I've really done it, if that, if this is something that is really in my hand, if I've really done something of disloyalty to my king, if I have not fulfilled my responsibility as, as an agent of the king in this kingdom, if I have taken upon myself heirs that, that belong to the king, if I, if, if, you know, he's brought me into his family, into the palace, if I've repaid evil to him, who is at peace with me, if I've plundered my enemy without cause, if I have really done what's been accused of me. And the enemy here now is Saul. David knows Saul has made David his enemy. He says, well, if I've done anything against him, if I've plundered him, if I've somehow robbed him of something that is he that he is due, then I deserve this. And so let it fall on me. Let him overtake me, verse 5. Let him trample my life to the earth. Let me, let my honor, lay my honor in the dust. And that is not only do destroy my life, but destroy my name. And we don't think about the name, and the name is very, used very, very carefully in Scripture uh, because we want to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. God says, I'll put my name on these people. I'll put my name on this place, this temple that it represented his character and his quality. And we and David here is essentially saying, let my name be drugged through the dirt, not just my physical death, but let me not be remembered anymore because I have such a bad reputation. Let me be remembered as those who are the enemies of Israel. Uh, let my honor lay down with me. Let it go to, to that place. And, and let me be compared to um, others. And we see in the history of Israel, both future to David and also in his past, like Balaam. And Balaam is never spoken of in a positive way in Israel. Um, he was the great evil. Uh, and later on, we will have, during the time of Esther, uh, the um, Haman. And that, that name was not ever going to be spoken. And it's going to even as they read the story today, in their synagogues, they will shout to make sure his name can't be heard when it is brought up in the text. And so David says, let me be like one of those. If what they're accusing me of is true, 
Let me be destroyed and basically let my memory be a negative one. Let my honor even be destroyed so that I'm not a martyr that somehow was a righteous man who was killed, but let me be a criminal that is only known for infamy. Let it all happen to me. And this is his case. He is so convinced of his righteousness that he hasn't done anything, that he comes before God and he presents this, uh, these conditional statements. If this were true of me, I would have no basis to ask for you to intercede for me, which I've already done. I've asked for your deliverance. I've asked um, for you to save me. And he's going to revisit his, his um, innocence on several occasions in the balance of this chapter uh, by saying, I'm okay with God judging me because of my integrity, because of my righteousness. We're going to see that in, in several, at the conclusion of several of these uh, clauses and, and, and verses, if you will. Um, not verses that you have, but the verses of this song. And where he says, it's, you know, I have innocence, I have integrity, I have righteousness. I am not the guilty party in these circumstances. And it is, of course, we, we saw where David told Saul, you know, let the Lord be the judge. Let him be the judge. Present your case. Here's my case. You know, God put you in my hand. I could have destroyed you. And somehow God has allowed me to elude you. So you tell me who is righteous here. And Saul's conclusion was that that is correct. You are more righteous than I am, for I am pursuing you in error because of jealousy, because of because of malfe- I, I'm in the I'm in the wrong. I've made you my enemy. Who I made I brought you as my son. I made you my enemy, and I wasn't righteous in doing that. And all these other people. And remember, David says, "Why are you listening to men who tell you I am your enemy?" Why are you listening to them? And one of those men was likely this guy named Cush. Why are you listening to them? Interesting that here in this psalm we have this pause between verse 5 and 6. That the pause is to contemplate and consider his innocence and now we are going to... uh, redirect our attention to the Lord and what this means. What does God think when the righteous are maligned? That is, what does God think of false accusations in general? We have an opportunity here to really stop and prepare our minds to receive God's approach to this. And In Proverbs, we are said that there are six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are abomination to him, and uh, among those are those that bear false witness. The bearing false witness, false accusations uh, against another, um, God hates. He abhors it. It's an abomination to him. And so as we contemplate the condition of David, and we have sympathy towards that, David understands, it's almost like a meditation now, what does God think of those that lend false accusations? And this brings us into 
uh, area of self-contemplation. That I need to be very, very careful. The law and in the New Testament, we have clear instruction that you're supposed to have um, more than one accuser. You're supposed to have multiple ones. They should all agree. There should be ample evidence. And our whole judicial system is set up upon that, that concept. And we think, well, that's, that's normative, but it really isn't. And in fact, what happened um, with false accusation was that's the premise by which Israel delivered up our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for crucifixion. And realize that when we participate in this, on any level, pointing the finger at someone else, whether they've done it or not, and, and by the way, we learn to do that really, really young. Okay? If you've had multiple children and you don't know who committed the crime and you set them all down say who committed the crime, it, you'll find out that they all did because they'll all accuse each other. Like this, right? Maybe your family might be blessed with one really tender-hearted person that just, if they commit a crime, just balls it all out and tells you. And, and those are little blessings. Um, everyone else is normal. Um, the, <laughs> of accusing others, whether you knew who did it or didn't know who did it or you did it. Of accusing others, you don't know who did it, and I'm going to accuse them because I don't want to be blamed because I know I didn't do it, so I'll accuse someone else. Uh, that's a false accusation. God hates it. And so in my house, you falsely accuse, you get into bigger trouble than the original problem. Way bigger trouble in my house for that. If you don't know, say, I don't know. But don't lie in that either. If you do know, make the same. If you did it, fess up to it. That's your easiest way out. It takes a long time to convince children of that. They're sure by accusing, especially the younger brother that can't talk yet. Right? So I deal with this with my grandkids still now. You know, it just gets passed down the road, and then it's, Richard did it. I'm like, Richard's an infant. He didn't do that. You know, because it's going from Trevor to Levi to Silas to Richard. Surprise. It's Richard's fault. You know, like, no, he didn't do that, Silas. And now I work my way back up the line, and because all of them accuse somebody else, they're all in trouble. Because either one of them, or three, at least three of the four, are all false accusers. Well, actually, Richard didn't accuse anybody. So three of the three are false accusers somehow. It is in a natural instinct, and God says, this is what I hate. And it's about selfishness. Cush is driven by a selfish ambition of getting in good with Saul, the king, um, or something along that line of supporting a fellow Benjaminite. And, and um, pause and think about what does God think of that? And then when we get to the application to Jesus Christ, and then we think of the application, and there, there's, there's a wickedness that we start pointing a finger and say, they are sinners, they are sin, they have done this. And that's why in the church discipline model, we, we take very great pains to make sure that, that this isn't a false accusation, but that there is something of substance behind this. And, and there's something demonstrable there 
that we don't just take this action lightheartedly and, and indiscreetly. Uh, and oh, that pastors practice that. I've been on the brunt of that, a false accusation. Um, and, and it's been costly. It was so costly my reputation that I, I haven't spoken outside of here but one or two occasions in the last 20 years. That's what false accusation can do to your reputation. For those of you who have been here longer than 20 years, you know that frequently I was out of this pulpit because I was speaking in various places, conferences, camps, uh, both here in this country and internationally, and, and traveled a lot. All it took was one man to give a false accusation and then for it to get feet because everyone believed that one man. How could he have false motives? Oh, easily. And so the destruction they talk, what does God think of this? And it informs us to guard our tongue. When we start pointing a finger, that we better have first-hand knowledge and we better be well-informed on what's going on and not just based on hearsay, not just based on, on uh, assumptions, but that we genuinely have their interests in mind and not our own selfish interests. It's an easy thing to point the finger at others to elevate ourselves. And that is of human nature. And I use the illustration of children because I want you to see that it is in the nature of man to do that. That God calls to something supernatural, to a righteousness that is foreign to the world. But it should not be foreign among God's people. So pause, meditate. We come to verse 6 now. So how, what does God think of this? He's angry. He's not angry at David. God's anger is at these false accusers and the enemy that wants to act on these false accusations. And so, Lord, in your anger, he doesn't say, Lord, get angry. He says, Lord, in your anger, because this is God's response to false accusation. Oh, be careful when you want to point the finger and call somebody without true knowledge of that. And essentially that's what gossip is, uh, and there are many other ways of passing on these accusations. No, what the psalmist is requesting of God is to act on his anger. The anger is the assumption. God is already in the condition of wrath towards those that bear false witness against their neighbor. Those that will falsely accuse the righteous who will do that. God is already angry, and so he doesn't have to incite God to anger. God has already been incited to anger by the evil of the false accuser. And now what the psalmist is asking, and that kind of makes this into kind of an imprecatory psalm where you're asking God to destroy your enemies and do bad things, to uh, do harm to them. Uh, he is inviting God to arise to lift yourself up, to rise up, and, and to uh, act on his anger. And that is a frightening thing to ask for, and not done lightly. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Let your rage deal with their rage, instead of me trying to 
clear my name instead of me trying to get revenge. Uh, and that's what was offered to David, right? Here's your chance. Now you can take the life of Saul who's trying to take your life. He's And, and all of his men wanted to do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. This is, this is the victory we've been waiting for. And, and he says, no, 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 no. This is not the way we get it. We let God, and he even says this to Saul, right? I could lift my hand against you. I'd rather God lift his hand against you. Let him be the judge. Let him exercise it. And what a wonderful illustration of this verse. Let God's wrath deal with you so that it's not me. And then what is everyone going to say? Well, there must be truth to that accusation. Look what he did to the king. I don't want to do anything that would give any uh, substance to the accusations being brought. That is not our response. And so we talk about, well, do I, am I allowed to defend myself? I defend myself before the Lord, and I wait for his deliverance. How long did David wait? Well, he waited quite a while, and he was hunted for quite a while. Years and years. And so when we look at this, um, Lord lifted up. And verse 7, here's what he wants. So the congregation of the people shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples, judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. That's that positive statement, according to the, the integrity within me. But he's at, inviting this because he wants it to be known to everybody what is the truth. He wants it evidence to everyone. And I believe God answered this psalm's prayer by the events we just read earlier of granting this audience before Saul and everyone with Saul, his entire army had failed him in letting his life be jeopardized that way. And please notice, David says, hey, why are you listening to those guys? Here's the proof that I am not your enemy. I am, I am not going to break my vows. I am not going to maltreat you. You are the anointed of Israel. Let God deal with you and let him judge between us and again, for the congregation to glorify God that there might be righteousness, justice in the land. Because under this period of Saul, it was kind of a free-for-all. And what David desired was that the Lord shall judge the peoples. That it cannot be you pursuing your interests and me pursuing my interests because there will not ever be justice in that condition. Rather, let the Lord judge and, and judge me. He's willing to be judged. He says, I know I, in my integrity, so I'm willing to have God be my judge. Are you ready for God to be your judge? You know, I can come before God and say, well, I know that I've studied your word and that I've come to these conclusions and that they are consistent with God's word and I, and I know I'm not a heretic. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm not a heretic. And if I am, I deserve this treatment and worse. If what they say about me is true, then I don't belong in any pulpit anywhere ever again. Um, and, uh, and But again, is it for me to... Do that as a for God to be the judge. I'd, it's much better for God to be the judge of that. 
that you can walk in your integrity and your righteousness and trust in the Lord that he will resolve this and that he will um, grant you that opportunity that of deliverance, of salvation, of, of clearing of your name, of establishing, reestablishing your honor. And that's what David wants, not just for himself, but for the whole society of, his, of God's people. And that's why verse 9 says, oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. Establish the just, for the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defenses of God who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge. You see the, the concept of judgment, and he's, he's angry that with, with sin and, and this evil all the day. Uh, don't think that he is disinterested or, or um, not engaged. Uh, he is interested in the care of his people, which means that they when they are maligned uh, with with false accusations and the and the like, that he cares. It is then simply I don't have to get God angry; He already is. I have to call Him to action on my behalf, and then wait upon Him to do that. But not just for me, but for all those. The prophets consistently came forward and said, we want justice in our land. Justice for who? The poor, the fatherless, the widows. We want justice for them. Because those are the ones who frequently society does nothing just for. The only ones that seem to get justice are the ones that have the power, the money, the ability to influence legislators. Right? They get, quote-unquote, justice. David didn't want that for his nation. And so he asks, invites God to come in as judge. That he already hates evil and is simply a time for him to test the hearts and minds of men. That that is really what is at issue here. We don't know the hearts. And that's why so many false accusations go to saying to destroying character because we, we interpret something we see and then we attack the character of that person when we don't even know what's in their heart. We don't even know what the condition of their life is that we saw in the last chapter, in chapter 6, of the stresses and pressures that are upon them and, and this, the, the harshness of, of life in this world and what it can do to them physically and, and spiritually and emotionally. And, um, and so we, we attack. The term is you kick a dog when he's down. No, only God is the tester of hearts and minds of men. And certainly Jeremiah tells the heart is wicked, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so even for our own hearts, we ask God to test it. Which David has already done in this psalm. Look at me. Be my judge. Examine me. Have I done this? What I'm accused of doing. Have I really done it? And repeatedly throughout this section, 
talking about the nature of God's response to this one particular sin, and then in response to the general term of justice in a land, we find him saying, examine me. For I'm pretty sure my righteousness, my integrity, will hold up. And thus he says, my defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. He's going to come in and test your heart. And we want that to happen. The truly, the person who has a desire after God's own heart, like David did, that's what qualified David to have this royal covenant put upon him because when Saul failed to get that royal covenant, what did God say? I am waiting for someone to be after my own heart. And so David qualifies as that, or will qualify for that in the future of this sense. And so he says, listen, examine my heart. I want you to judge my heart. I want to be a heart that pursues you. I want to have the heart that is after you, that, that wants to be like yours, that wants to conform to your righteousness, to your desires. I want to, what you want for this people, for myself, and therefore you're my defense. And once that is examined by God, we have confidence that God will save us because God is just. We come to verses 2 or 12 and following, and we have a little bit of difference between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint that we're going to reference a little bit here. The challenge is, who is it that is sharpening the sword, bending the bow, and preparing instruments of death and arrows into fiery dart shafts? Um, in the Masoretic text that you have before you, it, it seems that we're asking God to do all that, that if God starts that process, um, that uh, he has his sword sharpened, his bow is made ready, he has instruments of death, he makes his arrows into shafts, um, the, in those two verses. In the, in the Septuagint, the Greek, it is evident that this is going to the enemy. That the enemy is preparing all their weapons of war really against the judgments, the justice of God. Whereas in the Masoretic, it seems that God's preparing all these weapons of war to use against the wicked. Um, and I don't know that that, that isn't possible, um, but very seldom do we have God associated with some of these weapons. Um, very, a uh, sword we do recognize as a divine instrument of judgment, uh, but in terms of some of these other ones, it's not very frequently talked about in those terms, especially the um, bow and the fiery darts that are often associated with wickedness. I prefer the, the Septuagint um, because it brings us in now, having done a whole segment on the righteousness and justice of God, the judge. That's his condition. What is going on with the wicked? Are they responding to God as judge? No, they're just sharpening their swords, you know, setting their bows, getting ready to fire more. They're just going to up the attack. And David recognizes this. Can you imagine him almost penning this as being surrounded by 
and he's like, I got no place to go. I'm in a cave. You can almost imagine him repenting these words the, the day, that day or earlier that previous day when he knows he's getting surrounded by Saul's army. He knows he's getting penned in. They're sharpening the swords. They're getting ready. They're going to destroy him. They're going to overrun him. And he's turning to God and says, you're the righteous judge. You have to be enraged at what they have said about me. You have to defend the righteous in this case, and they are in this condition. And we come to verse 14. And it says, Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. He conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. He is bringing out that here they are preparing, and, and I have no defense. I'm really down to it. I am backed into a corner. I'm in a cave. And the king is in the cave. Now, the king doesn't go very far without a guard. Uh, and um, so, I mean, they're backed into it. If Saul's army went in there instead of Saul, these people would have been annihilated. And here, David says, they are not backing away. They are not repentant. They are not recognizing your anger. They want trouble. They want to keep bringing forth iniquity. They're going to keep telling lies in verse 14. This is what they conceive. This is what they imagine. This is what they dwell upon is how to destroy the righteous. And they do so with lies. These are the weapons that they use. These weapons of evil that they use. And the psalmist then comes to God and, and suggests something again that we also saw in David's speech to Saul. And that is, you're making your own trap. You're making your own problem. In verse 15, he made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own. His violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. And again, the evidence here and the correlation to David's speech to Saul is so strong. Where David basically says, you know what? I haven't done anything wicked to you and you're doing nothing but wickedness to me and you've fallen into your own trap. God has made you fall into your very own trap. And here's the proof. I've got a corner of your robe. And isn't this the case of, of when that happens? And so when we come to this, and David uh, says, who, who, who can take vengeance? He says, let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. And then he says this proverb. Here we go. And I'm convinced this proverb is the basis of what we see in these verses at the end of this psalm. The proverb was, Wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand should not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? Therefore, a flea, a dog. Uh, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see, my, plead, and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. The confidence that David has at this point is evident, right? God has seen my 
case. He has judged this. He's put you into my hand. But, you know, wickedness proceeds from the wicked. You're just going to pers- keep doing this. And, and while Saul backs away and relents at this occasion, he, he doesn't give it up, does he? He still, he doesn't really surrender and bring David in back into his household. He doesn't acknowledge the anointing that God has put on David um, that Jonathan certainly knows about. He doesn't uh, relent from his wickedness to the point that God is going to take his life in the course of battle, not only his life, but Jonathan's as well. And we find that, that this proverb, this concept, that there, you've dug your own trap. You meant for me to fall into it, and you fell into it. You had me trapped in that cave. All you had to do was fill the entry with your army and just march in. We were doomed. But you fell into your own trap. And God put you into my hand, and I spared you, because I have a righteous cause. You have an unrighteous cause. You want to keep pursuing iniquity. And what has been accused of me is actually true of you. And so we wait. We wait patiently on the Lord. And this is one of the most difficult things to do. I understand that. Even when we see those who have falsely accused us seem to have to gain, seem to have um, succeeded, and yet the promise is that the trouble he has planned will return on his own head. We simply wait. And while God gave David a, a victory there, an evidence victory, it's a, what do you want to call that? A sampling if you will, of the fact that I'm going to bring you to be king because I anointed you. It's good. You can have confidence in the end result. And you can also have confidence in me to, for the intermediate steps to get you to that point. You're just going to have to wait. And that is portrayed here in this, in this psalm that, yes, they're, they're going to do evil, um, they're going to keep pursuing it. They're sharpening their swords. They're getting the, they, they just want to attack me, attack me, attack me. That's their plan. But God can set their plan against them. They can fall into their own traps, into their own pits. It'll come down on their own head. And he even uses the word crown, um, which makes it very evident he's talking about the king. And so it's going to come upon their own head, their own authority, their own name. But we will simply wait. And that's such an important principle. It's not that I can't defend myself. It's that it is not for me to take up and to make it right. I am not the judge. And it's not for me to cause any of that. I don't want it to be, well, he got his revenge. That cannot be the testimony. Because what that does is reinforce the accusation much better that I come before this as a sheep before his shear is silent. He, he's not going to... Did God defend... Did Jesus defend himself? Well, he stated the truth. But that whole notion, I'm going to wait upon the Lord and he will be, judge me. He will save me. He will save my name, my honor, 
my reputation. I'll put that into his hands as well as my life. And God can bring that all back to him while it might seem even early on that, well, you know, why does Saul persist? Why does Saul keep living? Well, eventually it's going to go. And did David quickly come into the kingdom? No, it was a struggle to get to get the other tribes to join him outside of his own. He had to prove himself because all of the mud that had been slung around about David has sullied his honor. He had to reestablish that. It takes a lot of time. But God enabled him to do that. But that event where he could have slain Saul and taken that role was critical. It was critical to the men who were following to teach them. You know, there's a difference between a bunch of malcontents and me. I'm being hunted not because I'm discontent, because the king is discontent with me for some reason. I don't even know why. So it's to instruct his men. It's to communicate something to hopefully that that the rest of Israel would repent of hunting after and being disloyal to David and, and falling after Saul and his error. But they didn't do that. But at least it was an opportunity for God to demonstrate to all the peoples his justice and to let this happen. And so we wait. We pay, wait upon the Lord and let the violence they intend for us to fall on their own head. And sometimes that waiting is beyond our lifespan. Because I find in Scripture that there are a group of people at the throne of God who are crying out for God to express His anger on the earth for those who have slaughtered us, the martyrs. So yes, you might have to wait longer than your lifetime to see it set right by God. But we can have every confidence that God will set it right. That He will bring it back around upon themselves. I think it's fascinating when you read through the book of Revelation how it does that. You notice later on in the seven years of God's wrath, who is it that has the physical malady? Only the people with the mark. Isn't that interesting? And some have conjectured, well, the mark itself was what brought forth the malady. Um, it was a poison, it poisoned them somehow. And but it's just that whole idea. It's this principle in play, right? It's just gonna come right back on their own heads. They think this is a mechanism to, um, because without the mark you can't buy or sell, so it's a mechanism to make your life miserable, and it ends up making their life miserable. God has a way of bringing it back on their own heads, doesn't he? And that's what the psalmist is reminding himself of. I'll wait on the Lord. He is my source of justice. I want him to judge my heart, and and certainly, um, but ultimately, I want him to set it right so that his name is praised and there's really justice among his people. It really transcends just my condition. I really want justice in the land and among his people. Then we come down to the final verse, verse 17. I really did get 17 verses in one sermon. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Every commentator I read said this is really 
a break in form and everything from the rest of the chapter. And I would say, I fully expect that. Because I'm pretty sure this verse he wrote after that chapter. If he penned the rest of it the day before when he's being surrounded and it looks like things are in trouble and there's this false accusation all this stuff, the day after the event, and Saul marches his army away, yeah, I would sit down and write a little last verse. <laughs> oh, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. I will be king one day, and God will deliver me, and God will slay my enemies. I can trust him to do both things. He can not only deliver my body, but my soul. He can deliver my reputation, my honor. He can fully save me. And he can do to the enemy whatever needs to be done to destroy them, to, to, to uh, bring upon them justice. And so I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High and because we can trust in him. And one day we should be ready to sing that. We should have a confidence as we go through these tumultuous times. I don't know of any harder time there's ever been in my ministry than being under the weight of false accusation. Um, it's horrific. But God is faithful. He is just. He is righteous. And we allow it to test our own hearts, to test our own minds, to... Um, examine ourselves and allow God to put us through that crucible that we might come out better on the other side, purified. But we also can trust in God to take care of those that troubled us. And I wish I could say those are all going to be out there in the world. But frankly, like David, they're going to be your kinsmen. They're going to be people who should be supporting you and should be excited for you um, that are going to be hunting and doing injury to you, even seeking to destroy you. Their motives can be various. But in the midst of all that, we actually have confidence that the Lord will execute judgment. He is already angry at sin. You don't have to incite him to that. You have to invite him to take action, and, but do so carefully. For it is a frightful time. And I'm pretty sure David, while he anticipated Saul's death, did not anticipate Jonathan's. Because Jonathan said, you're going to become king, and I'll serve by your side. And Jonathan was wrong about the last half. He got caught up in the Lord's anger towards the house of Saul to clear the way for David. So we can praise the Lord that he is righteous. He will do what is right. And he is the Lord most high. He is above every king and every kingdom. He is far above them. And he will do right and nothing that the world does can thwart his ability to do right 
when he is ready to exercise his wrath. He already has it. The Bible says that it's being filled up. When his wrath is filled up, he'll execute it. You're calling him to action here against the wicked who are just trying to throw every weapon they have at us instead of reconsidering their ways. Oh, that Saul would have reconsidered his ways entirely and have seen the results of cooperating with God's plan to bring David into the kingdom. But instead it cost Saul not only his own life and kingdom, but his own family. And so we trust in the Lord and we praise and sing His name and not seek our own solutions. To seek revenge, to seek to prove that we aren't what other people say we are. We simply let God establish our honor to His praise. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank You for Your love for us that you are a righteous God and just. And Lord, we see a lot of injustice. We have been recipients of a lot of injustice and likely, Lord, we have participated in a lot of injustice. Forgive us of that. Lord, we know, for your word has declared it clearly, that you are enraged by the wickedness that surrounds us in this land and throughout the earth. You've seen what that entails in the past. You've foretold us what it would look like in the future, and we invite you to move in your anger to bring justice around us. But Lord, we also ask that you might test our own hearts, our own minds, to see if there be any wickedness in us, that we might avoid your judgment, by repentance. And so, Lord, we invite your conviction, your examination, your tests, and we pray that like David, we might trust in you, even when the enemy doubles down and wants to inflict even more harm and to do even more wickedness, that we might have confidence. You are the judge of all the earth. That one day you will set that right. Until that day, we pray that we might be found faithful in your service. To your glory and to your praise. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.